The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Serious tone, Steve, we need to talk. And I smiled and asked her, are you breaking up with me? We laughed a little bit. Now, why did I think that was a little bit humorous? Because I was totally convinced that there was absolutely no possibility that was actually happening. If there had been any little hint of fear within me, I wouldn't have dealt with that so flippantly. I would have been a little concerned. But that's not the case. I am safe with her. We are covenanted together. And that covenant creates a sweet place which we can laugh and we can play and we can argue, confess sin to one another, and grow as individuals and as a couple, never fearing that the relationship is going to be severed in some way. God wants his people to realize something similar about his relationship with them. He has created just such a covenant with his people. A better one even, a stronger one than our marriage covenant. And God has done that in Christ. So we're going to look at this morning as we continue on through John chapter 10. Last week in the beginning of chapter 10, we saw Jesus teaching using a very familiar analogy of the shepherd and the sheep. Very familiar for his culture, very common. Very common also in the Old Testament. The scriptures repeatedly picture God as the shepherd of his sheep, his people. We looked in Ezekiel 34, for instance, and we saw there how God is highly concerned to see that his sheep are cared for, highly concerned that they be shepherded. So concerned, in fact, that when mere humans fail to do that, they fail to gather the sheep together and to feed them and to nourish them and care for them and teach them. When human beings fail, God emphatically says, I myself will come do it. I want it done. I myself will come do it. And in the very same chapter, he says, David, my servant, meaning the Messiah, King David's been dead for several hundred years by that point, David, the Messiah, will come do it. Both. I, myself, David, the Messiah, shepherd over my flock. So you have this, I will do it, says the Lord, same chapter. Messiah will do it, says the Lord. John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, says Jesus puts those two things together. He's the Messiah and he's God, both. It fits perfectly in this book of John. Remember how John 1.1 1, 1 begins? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Two and one. Well, here you have Messiah and, and the Lord both shepherding. Essentially, Jesus says, how is it that God emphatically himself can shepherd and Messiah David can shepherd? Well, if the Lord is the Messiah, there you have it. That's his conclusion, and that drew some consternation from his listeners. There was some disagreement, some division about that. They weren't sure how to take that. So that's where the chapter ended, or the middle of the chapter ended. Now this morning, this section this morning probably is not part of the very same conversation, but it continues on with some similar themes. We have shepherd and sheep there again today. We have Jesus as Messiah, as shepherd, as God. Similar ideas we're going to explore today. So let me read the read this section. It's the last half of chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. 
I'll read that and then we'll go back over it to make sure that we understand the text then pull out a couple of main points. I'm in John 10, starting in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. We read in verse 22 that the Feast of Dedication was going on at this time. This is also known as the Feast of Lights or as Hanukkah. Perhaps you know that term. The celebration was about three months before Passover and what it was remembering or celebrating was the rededication, the reconsecration of the temple after it had been defiled approximately 200 years earlier. The Jews had been able to reclaim the temple, they'd cleansed it, they'd been able to worship again, and so they celebrated by lighting lights. It was a festival of lights. That's what was going on at this time. Jesus is there in Jerusalem at the temple, walking, and a crowd gathers around him, and the question comes to him, why don't you just tell us plainly? Why don't you make it clear? Are you the Christ or not? And on the face, that, that would seem like an innocent enough question. They want to know who Jesus is. That's a good thing. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus' response and their response makes that pretty clear. They aren't saying, can you help us understand something? Rather, they're saying, will you say it loud and clear so that we can get it right down here on record so we can condemn you? That's what they're after. Jesus, if you are the Christ, if you're claiming to be the Messiah, the Deliverer sent by God, would you state it loud and clear, plainly for us here? I did, says Jesus. Really? When? 
I mean, we can look all back through the book of John, and it's not there anywhere. I mean, we can see in John 4 where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, I am the Christ. But when speaking with Jewish people, he repeatedly avoids that. In fact, it is always his method to never claim the title of Christ. Why not? Well, it's deliberate because in their minds, this title of Messiah or Christ had been strongly, almost completely turned to mean something, to mean a political, a militaristic deliverer. And so Jesus, if Jesus were ever to say, I'm the Messiah, what he in their minds would be saying is, I am the leader of the insurrection. Rally to me, here's the rebellion. And he's not that at all. So he never claims to be the Christ. On the other hand, he claims it all the time. He is repeatedly taking scriptural identifiers, scriptural aspects of Messiah, not cultural ones, not commonly expected ones, but scriptural aspects and saying, that's me, and that's me, and that's me, and that's me, all the time claiming to be these parts of the Messiah. Like last week, I'm the good shepherd. You read the Old Testament, who's the shepherd? The Lord, the Messiah, I'm the good shepherd. Impossible to miss that. As you read this, you, you get the strong impression that these accusers know what he's saying. They just want it in plain English so that he can't wiggle out of it later. Jesus isn't going to play along, though. He's not going to give it to him in plain English. I have told you, but you don't believe. The problem is not in my communication, not in my words, nor in my works. It's within you. You do not believe. The problem is within your hearts. Think about it. What have I said? And look around. What have I done? The lame leap for joy. The blind see. Just like Isaiah 35 says what happened in the day of the Messiah. It's there for you to see the work of the Father in me. But you don't. Why not? Because of something. Now for those of us who are a little theologically minded here, let me point something out. I'm not going to talk very long about this, but notice something here. There is a clear note what's called election and predestination here. Those are not just theological terms. Those are Bible terms. Jesus himself uses them in other places. doesn't use those words here, but there is a clear order to things here. Notice, he has the evidence. There is evidence there to be believed. The people don't believe it for a reason. We've seen this before in chapter 6. We saw it last week. Why don't they believe? Because they are not part of Jesus' flock. It's right there in the verse. There's an order. Before belief comes being in the flock. That's why they don't believe. God has a flock, and he has sent Jesus to gather it together, to call it out, and to group it together into one flock, and he will be one shepherd of it. We saw that last week. And those who are his flock, who are his sheep, they hear his voice and they follow him. Now all those words there, if you look at verse 27, hear and know and follow, those are all in the present tense. It's a continual ongoing thing. Jesus knows who are his. His hear him and they follow. On and on and on and on and on. They follow. He clearly he's picking up language from last week. The analogy of the shepherd and the sheep, the many different flocks, and the shepherd calls out his own, his own hear his voice, and they follow after him, and he leads them. That's what he's saying. They follow, and the result is that he gives them abundant life. It's from last week. 
or this week it's eternal life, everlasting life, which of course means that they're never going to perish. It's an emphatic statement there. He says, never, ever perish. My sheep, I call them out. They believe I give them never-ending, everlasting life. They never, ever perish. And just to be double, triple clear about that, he continues on. He seems to have here left the argument. You can almost kind of say, weren't we talking about are you the Christ or not? He seems to have left that off to the side, and now he's talking to the sheep about blessings that he gives to them. He's going to come back to that, but right now he's talking about what he does for the sheep. I give them never-ending life. I hold them in my hand, and no one ever snatches them away. And more than that, the Father who gave them to me Father who gave them, sounds like language from chapter 6. The Father who gave them, He holds them in His hand too. And He is, has a hand that is rock solid. It's a vice grip. Forged steel. Stronger than everything. He's sovereign. He holds these sheep. They never get away. Thieves and robbers come along to try to snatch the sheep away. No one snatches my sheep away. I hold them solid forever. The Father and the Son. How can both the Father and the Son be holding the same group of sheep? I and the Father are one. Now he comes back to the discussion about is he the Christ or not. He says, I and the Father are one. Are you the Christ? Well, look at me working in such close tandem with the Father. I hold the sheep. Father holds the sheep. We are shepherding the sheep. So you tell me, am I the Christ or not? What do you think? Now, this is going to cause some problems. We see in the following verses it causes some great problems to his listeners. But before we move on there, let's be really clear about what he does and does not exactly say. He did not literally say, in verse 30, he did not literally say, I and the Father are identical. He didn't say that we are the same person. He didn't say that. That's, that's important. It's a very technical point of grammar, but it is important. Think again about John 1.1. 1, 1. You have the two. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. But there's still two. They're not identical. The Father and the Son are different persons in the one being of God. Now, we'll find out later. The Holy Spirit will come to center stage later that God is a, is a trinity. He is three in one. But here we're only talking about two, Father and Son. And he has not merged the two so closely that father and son are identical. That's not the case. Rather, he said, we are functionally working so closely together that we are one. But the Jews also heard the claim to deity in that. He's not saying we are functionally one in the same way that if you and I are working together on a task, we're functioning, functioning together. He's saying far more than that. The Jews very clearly heard the claim to deity. Just like in chapter 5 where he said, all that the Father does, I do, and they understood he's claiming oneness with God far above what any of us would dare to reach for. Same thing here. He's reaching for something in this context. It's oneness with the Father. Identity. They hear the blasphemy then and they seek to kill him on the spot, which is illegal. They haven't tried him. They're seeking to illegally kill him. There's a lynch mob here. And Jesus then rather coyly asks, 
for which one of these beautiful, noble, good works that I've done are you seeking to punish me, you twisted, mean-spirited people? Okay, the last part wasn't exactly in there. <laughs> but I brought that up to highlight something. Jesus is posturing this question. We might say he's putting a spin on it. Because he asks them, which one of these good works, and the word good there, it has a flavor to it. You might almost translate it noble or beautiful. He's br they're, they're obviously pretty angry. And he's bringing up, he's brought up his works before that he does in the name of the Father. He's going to bring them up again. Here he surfaces something, and it's as if he says, okay, just so that I'm clear on the concept, are you going to kill me because I had mercy on the man born blind and had grace to heal him? Is that why? Or are you going to kill me because I had gracious mercy on the man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, lying in his own filth, and I helped him to walk again? Is that why? Or is it because I had mercy on the little boy trapped in a fatal fever and gave him life again? Is, is that why you're killing me? Just so that I'm clear, which one is it? And you stand there with a rock in your hand. If you're at all sensitive, you're feeling like a Cretan right now, and you say, no, it's not for any of those good, noble, beautiful things. They even repeat it. Not for any of those good, beautiful things that were going to kill you, though you did do them all, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, make yourself to be God, which is the height of irony. If you've been following along, you know he is not a man who is making himself God. He is God who made himself man. And where in the world would he be getting all the power to do these things? if that was not the case, which is exactly the question Jesus wants them to ask themselves. Think about this. What am I doing? You don't believe what I say, but look at what I do. So they're paused for a second, stone in hand, and Jesus responds. He doesn't deny their, their claim here. You're making yourself God. It's the golden opportunity for him to save his life by saying, no, 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 no. No, I'm not. By no means, brothers, I would never equate myself with the Holy One. Far be it from me. I am not making myself God. And he saves his life if he says that. But he doesn't. Instead, he throws out a simple, verbal parry. If you're fencing, it's a little, a little blow that just diverts the opponent's attack. Still leaves you both standing there armed. He hasn't solved anything. He's just given them pause to think, to question something. It's not a knockout blow, but an invitation to ponder. The problem is that Jesus has called himself God. And apart from settling the question as to whether or not that's actually true, he brings something up. You know the law, meaning the whole of the Old Testament, you know the law uses that word, G-O-D, of course not in English, the law uses that word in some different contexts, like Psalm 82, for instance, where God Almighty calls creatures gods. What do you make of that? See, it would seem then, wouldn't it, that the word G-O-D is no call for a lynch mob. What do you make of that? Now, if you read through the psalm, it's pretty clear that there is one God existing in a massive system of monotheism but he's speaking to his creatures probably meaning all of Israel who received the law and was expected to implement it but didn't and so God is passing judgment on them 
you can look into that and you can figure out what he means, but that's not the point. He's not disputing with him about what Psalm 82 means. They agree with that. He's simply bringing up something that argues from the lesser to the greater. You know, if the people who received the word from God can in some sense or another be called gods, what do you think about the one who was consecrated and set aside the word who was sent? Doesn't he deserve some sort of a lofty title too, some way? Don't you think? And look around at what I'm doing. I am working in accordance with God. I am sent from Him. Check it out. Think. He's just trying to give them pause here. This doesn't settle anything, but it does point out you guys are transgressing the Bible in a couple different ways. Hold on there. Well, they do pause for just a little bit. He slips away. Where does he go? Back across the Jordan to John the Baptist's old stomping ground. And at this, we have a bookend. Where did the book of John begin? Chapter 1 with John the Baptist, announcing the coming of one whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. John's not the Christ. He's simply preparing the way for the Lord, the one who would come the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's preparing the way for him. And now here at the end of chapter 10, these people who heard John preach say, looking back at 10 chapters, John was right. This is the one. He is the Christ. And many believed. So the text ends. Now, there are a lot of things that we could discuss and look at here. Several smaller issues, for instance, we could talk about what Jesus thinks about the Bible, that comment of the law which cannot be broken. Jesus believes in inerrancy, believes the Bible's true. We're not going to talk about that. I think the main center of this message is concerned with, the center of this passage is concerned with Jesus and his work in relationship to God the Father and the sheep. That's what I'm going to address here in the remaining time. I hope to bring out this main point. God in Christ, God in Christ secures life for his sheep. Secures life for his sheep. So we should believe him, trust him, cling to him, hold fast to him, and follow him. Any other words you can think to tack on there? God in Christ secures life for for his sheep. I'm going to split that into, into two halves here. First part, first observation is that God is at work in Christ. Jesus asserts this. God is at work in me uniquely, differently than he is anywhere else, in anyone else in the world, and that means something. This observation is closest to what the crowd was, was first looking for when they wanted to know, are you the Christ or not? Jesus responds to them by pointing them to his works. He doesn't give them a straight up answer, but he says... Look at the works done in my Father's name, verse 25. I've shown you many good works from the Father, 32, verses 37 and 38. You see the works of God in me? That testifies that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Keeps bringing this up. Essentially, he's asking, do you see me? Kindly, nobly, beautifully shepherding the flock of God. Do you see that? Giving sight to the blind healing the lame, healing the feverish boy, 
providing for simple needs like wine at a wedding and for profound needs like access to God as I cleanse out the temple. Do you see that in me? Do you see those works? God breaking into the world to care for His sheep in me. God beginning to reverse the devastation of the curse. The curse that came in Genesis and wrecked everything. God is beginning to fix it, isn't He? In me. Right now, right here, in me. Who do you think I am? Think about it. Now, follow that argument of Jesus. It is not a simple, anyone who does a miracle is of God. Or anyone who does a miracle is the Messiah. It's not that simple at all. There are other spiritual powers with force, forces with power who can do things. You think no further than the sorcerers in Egypt who were able to mimic some of Moses' earlier works. Spiritual forces of evil are real. And for that matter, Moses and some of the prophets performed miracles did great things. Moses, his, plan, his hand the plagues come. He parts the Red Sea, gets water from a rock. He does things. So he's not simply saying, look at the power. That's not the point. The point of the argument, rather, is look at the whole package. Look at everything. Take Moses, for example. Yes, he performed many miracles. But the nature with which he performed the miracle of, of getting water out of the rock... The way in which he did that severed his relationship with God and God punished him by keeping him out of the promised land. And everybody knew that. And everybody knew that Moses was a known murderer. Killed the Egyptian. And Moses never would have taken the name of the I Am for himself. He took off his sandals and fell face down at the burning bush. He trembled in the presence of God. He was only allowed to see the backside of God and glowed for a long time. He never would have claimed that name. No, certainly any of the prophets nor the sorcerers from Egypt. Totally different thing. But then look at me now. Look at what I do. Look at the good and noble and beautiful works that I do on behalf of the sheep. Coming from my Father. I claim Him as my Father. Uniquely joining myself to Him. I say before Abraham was, I am. And what happens? Does God strike me dead? Does God keep me out of the promised land? Does God put a curse on me? No. He continues to give me even more power. Next chapter, I'm going to raise somebody from the dead. After that, I'm going to come back from the dead. God is approving of me in vast power. More things than even written about in John. And I make all these claims. Something's going on here. Something very different than anywhere else at any other time. And he takes it one step further. And that's because I and the Father are one. Boom! It's like a hand grenade. Can't believe he just said that again. Keeps doing that. Only people angry with him are those questioning him, not God. Not going to talk too much more about the deity of Christ because we've covered that ground a lot already. But it's in John a lot. We need to think about this. What does it mean that God is at work in Christ? He's bringing this up as the answer to the question, are you the Christ? God is at work in me. 
What he's trying to say is that everything, everywhere, all that God has been about ages past, all that he is about everywhere on the earth, is focused on me. God is at work in where? Me. God is radically Christ-centered. God has brought in the new age in Jesus and is lifting him up that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. To take a half step from that, what should we do? Revere the name of Jesus and bow at it. We should be equally Christ-centered. Now speaking primarily here to those who aren't sure what you, what you think about Jesus yet. You don't know who he is quite yet. Follow Jesus' advice here in this passage. Look at what I do. Look at what I do. That'll tell you something about who I am. You might be thinking, you might even talk to God and say, I don't totally know how Jesus can be fully submissively man and fully sovereignly God at the same time. I don't quite know how that works, but I look at what you do and some remarkable stuff is going on in your life. God seems to be at work in you. So, teach me. Explain it to me. Later in this passage where he says, if you don't believe me, believe my works that you may know and understand. It's the same word there, know and understand, different tenses. What he's getting at is believe the works, you'll know something and you'll come to know more. So come to him and say, I don't quite know how God can take on a body. I don't quite understand how my sin can be paid for by you on the cross and nowhere else. That, that's the only place, the only way. I don't quite get that, but something interesting is going on in you. Teach me. And in that phrase, teach me, what I mean is climb down out of the seat of judgment and say, illumine me. I need you to make things clear. You come humbly, not proudly. Not prove it to me, but teach me. Come to him like that. Respond to him like that. And don't think, don't be tempted to think, well, I don't have to believe because I'm probably not one of the sheep. It's not true. You, you cannot take that route. Nobody knows who the sheep are. Jesus does, nobody else does. Think of the Apostle Paul on his way to go persecute Christians, moments away from becoming a Christian. Nobody would have put any money on Paul, Saul, being one of the sheep. Nobody would have, till after it appeared that he was. True, if you persist your whole life in unbelief, then we will know, we'll be able to look back and know, I guess he wasn't one of the sheep. But nobody knows that now. The call to you, Jesus' command here is, believe on the basis of these works, at least. Start there. You are responsible for what you believe about God. Christians and non-Christians alike here. You are responsible for what you believe about God. He's put it right here for you. 
Don't try to take some back door out. Well, I probably can't believe anyway. Believe. If you hear some voice calling you, it's true. Respond to it. Do. Respond. Believe. Always God's command to everybody, everywhere. Believe. Christians too. We need to be Christ-centered. God is at work in Christ, in Jesus. Focus your heart and your life on Him too. Probably say more about that. If you want to talk more about that, please come to me afterwards. I'll move on to the second point now. God is at work in Christ, doing a lot of different things. What specifically is God at work in Christ to do here? That's the second observation. He is securing life for His sheep. Securing life for his sheep. And it happens in stages. First he gives it, and then it is kept. I give them eternal life, says Jesus, verse 28, and they never perish. Eternal life. Real, blessed, joy-filled, peace-filled, hope-filled Abundant life, we talked about last week. Life of plenty, not stuff, but life of plenty in here, despite what's going on out there. We've seen it previously in the book of John, equated with the kingdom reign of God. The kingdom reign of God that will one day cover all of the earth as the waters cover the sea, but right now is very local within the heart of a person. When God rules within the heart, when God is supreme over all things in the heart, Peace and rest and joy happens. We've talked about this a lot before. It's the ultimate work of the good shepherd to give this to his sheep. He lays down his life to shield them from the wrath of God that he might give them this life. Talked about that last week. Shields them from the penalty of their sin. It is eternal life. It never ends. Eternal means. It's not here today and then gone tomorrow. You're never going to perish. So sheep, you should hear something in this that is remarkable. You should hear something stunning in this. I know for a number of us we're hearing something very familiar. You should hear something stunning in this. Assuring, reassuring, the triune God has secured something for you. He's bound you to Himself and you cannot be snatched away. You cannot be accidentally lost. You cannot be displaced. You cannot be misplaced. You cannot foul it up. You can't sin grievously enough. You can't even choose to forfeit it yourself. He holds you fast by His grace. Now hear me carefully here. You can indeed be mistaken about the critical point as to whether or not you're actually saved. You can be mistaken about that. The Bible exhorts us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. That is important. There are some here today, I am sure, there are some in every church, in every age, probably more so to now, today now because of how we have, I think, watered down the gospel in many ways. But there are some here today who are mistaken on this point. 
and understand this to be teaching. I've been saved. I can do whatever I want. God will forgive me. It's not what he's saying. You have eternal life if you're a sheep and you follow. Now the sheep follow. This is joined together here. I'm trying to be not too technical with some of this theology here. I want you to get the main point of I need to follow. Follow in an ongoing, continual sense. Follow, follow, follow. That's how I know I'm a sheep. From Jesus' perspective, it says he knows his sheep. From our perspective, we don't have omniscience. So we say, who hears and who follows? Those are the people who should have confidence. Understand what I'm saying. Somebody will, will say to me, surely, do you mean somebody loses their salvation? No. What I'm saying is that it is possible to be mistaken about whether or not you are saved. How can you know? Well, one easy way is to say, am I following? Perfectly? No, nobody follows perfectly. We're still sinners. But you're following after Jesus. You're living a life that is continually more and more aware of your sin, more and more grieved by it, more and more repentant. Examine yourself. Ask, is that me? If it is you, grieved by your sin, struggling against it, if it is you, let this wash over you then. Be encouraged. God in Christ has done something remarkable for you. Something stunning. By sovereign Blind eye-opening, dead heart-enlivening grace, He has made covenant with you. He has shed the blood of the sacrificial lamb, joined you to Himself, and that covenant cannot and will not be broken. He holds you in His hand, and you will never be let go of, never snatched away. It's not based on anything that you've done, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not kept by anything that you do, not by works so that no one can boast. It is made and it is kept by sovereign grace. We sang a song, everything that I do, every vow that I make, every promise that I make, only by your grace, amen. We have to make vows, we have to obey, we have to follow, etc., as the song was saying. That happens by his grace. He sustains you. You don't sustain you. Glory in Him. Rest in that kind of confidence. He's made covenant with you. You're in the hand of Christ, in the hand of the Father who is sovereign over all. You should ponder that. You ever had a girlfriend or a boyfriend break up with you? Probably most people have in some way or another. Maybe the first hint that you got of that, maybe it just came out of left field and hit you, the first hint you got of that was, we need to talk. You're a wonderful person. It's not you, it's me. And you're driving home at night thinking, what happened? I thought things were great. Maybe that's how it happened. Or perhaps you've known about it for months and you've been walking on eggshells, afraid if I foul up this one more time, is that the last straw? Better not. What should, what should it be? Does she like this or this? Should I treat him like that? Or should I call him or not? What should it be? If I call him, it might aggravate him. If I don't call him, it might aggravate him. 
You're afraid. Neither one of those situations is any fun at all. Neither getting blindsided nor living for a long time performing in fear that you're going to be rejected if you don't get it just right. Neither one of them is any fun, and the shepherd wants you, his sheep, to know right now, I am not in that kind of relationship with you. You're not going to wake up one day and find, boom, you're out of here. My tastes have changed. You don't have to live walking on eggshells, day by day by day, wondering, am I doing just the right thing, just in the right way? Am I doing enough? Or is he going to reject me? Am I going to die and find, whoops, one level too short? No. It is not the nature of his relationship with you. You're safe in his hand, covenanted with him. The glorious grace of God holds you. It's a fabulous thing. Yes, we obey. Yes, we need to obey. But we don't obey out of fear that if we don't, he's going to cut us off. We obey in a context of his gracious relationship with us. We obey confident that tomorrow and the next day he's going to meet me with more grace. Because that's what kind of shepherd he is to me. He'll meet you in grace tomorrow and the next day. And so you're pursuing after him to find more of him, not running from something. There's a radically different internal experiential feeling in that kind of obedience. Get your mind around that. You obey in hope, on a promise, not in fear from a threat. This creates a realm in which you can laugh and play and argue and confess sin, and grow, and be confident that as you walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, the shepherd stands there with his rod to hold off the enemy and to comfort you. To be confident that I am secure. If God be for me, and he is, if God be for me, who can be against me? Nothing. Nobody. I don't need to live pleasing others either because God is for me, covenanted with me, holding me and never letting go of me. There are a lot of things to think about in this. It is beautiful. It is trust building. He is yours and you are his. God in Christ has secured life for you. Rest in him. Believe him. Follow after him, love him, trust him. And any other word you want to tack on that. God is for you. And he is for you in Jesus. May your heart be turned towards him to love him above all things. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 
South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.